Hello, friends. Do you like Elixir Talk? Are you adopting Elixir at your company? Unwise architectural decisions can sow confusion among your team and add permanent technical debt to an application. Even experienced engineers take time to learn Erlang and Elixir concepts and to understand the tools available to them in the ecosystem. Avoid costly ramp-up time and painful design decisions by hiring us, your Elixir Talk co-hosts Chris and Desmond, for a personalized consultation. We can train your team and help you design a robust system that leverages all of Elixir's strengths. Learn from our years of experience and have fun doing it. For more information, email us at info at elixirtalk.com. That's info at elixirtalk.com. Thanks so much and enjoy the show. Yeah, so what have you been up to on this project? Well, a lot of the work has been uh, caching. And it's coming from... um, Rails, request response, CRUD, so forth, um, and a lot of the there's a lot of heavy lifting um, in the application at the database to do things like find out where a user is located and then use that to figure out what jurisdiction they fall under and whether they're allowed to um, compete for certain prizes. So those queries are expensive, um, or the operations are expensive. And they have to do it several times for each request. So the thinking has been, well, let's just keep this in memory. Um, and it looks like it looks like a lot of caching. I mean, we're using a lot of ETS tables. Oh, cool. Uh, which has been fun. Mm. Um, and we're using gen servers to store individual sessions, um, which has also been fun. Although I've been wondering, like, putting a lot of the stuff in ETS tables makes it faster. Mm. But you can also get away with that in, uh, in Rails apps. Like caching is not new, and it comes with known problems. So, I think that's sort of been a wash. Have you tried some libraries for the caching, or did you just implement it yourself? Uh, it's all done ourselves. I mean, it's whether it's like uh, storing the answer, or um, keeping a list of things in memory, or keeping a mapping to different processes that we need to look up. The use cases have been tailored enough that it's easy just to write our own logic around um, putting things in the ETS tables and getting them back out. Mm. Can it be generalized uh, at this point? Not at this point. We've had an eye to that. Mm. Um, we've done a bit of generalizing in our own applications, but again, like, ETS is pretty good. It's quite simple to use, right? Like, when you get the syntax down and then... Yeah, the syntax is a little weird. Yeah. What are you, what are you keying on for the data, or does it vary? Um, usually IDs, okay. like UUIDs. Yeah. What about in the in the case where you said you're storing processes? Do you just have the PID as a lookup value? So yeah, the PID is the value, and the key would oh, be. Oh, sorry, you need user. a key. Yeah. Yeah. So <laughs> the key would be like the user's ID, and then we would say, "Give me the session for this user." Mm-hmm. Then I'll interact with it. But then, so you're you're interacting with these user sessions. Um, but you have to persist everything to the database because if the thing goes down, you need to rehydrate it. Yeah. So then, right? Like, you haven't bought yourself much. Mm. So why? So are you just doing the cash so you can alleviate some of the pressure on the DB? Yes. How expensive are those queries? Expensive enough. I haven't. I'm not that familiar with them to know. Mm. Um, but they're expensive enough. And um, the database is also very write-heavy. Okay. Which 
I mean, yeah, we could have our reeds come off a, a reed replica slave, but yeah. uh, it hasn't come to that yet. Mm. And so, I mean, I think the, the system will be faster overall and it'll scale a lot better. Like it'll handle sudden bursts of traffic much better. Um, Is that a use case here? Yes. Okay. Yes, it is. Mm. Um, and having a lot of concurrent users all doing a thing. You sound skeptical, um, though. Well, I'm just trying to take a clear-headed look at what the like what the wins are. Right. I think it's conceptually easy to think about your system in these terms. Um, is it a win for a uh, from an engineering perspective? Mm. Uh, in terms of performance and scalability. It's kind of interesting uh, when you drop in a cache like that and you, you still got like, if you're doing ETS tables, it's obviously on each node right, anyway, right? So are you doing persistent load balancing or anything like that to make sure that people always go to the same node? No, right now we're just thinking we deploy it to a single host. Okay. Yeah. Everything's there. Yeah, I mean, like you can do it with if you have like sticky sessions on a load balancer you can guarantee at least for the duration of that session that that person's going to go to the same host. Mm -hmm. So that's quite a nice way to deal with some of that. But do we need clustering? Um, do you need clustering? Depends, right? It depends on what you want your availability to be. If it's a single machine, then your availability is not great. How is it not great? When does it go down? Well, if the, if the machine like died and you didn't have a, anything else like to handle traffic, then your availability is pretty poor, right? Yes. How often does the machine die, and what kills it? <laughs> That's like asking, like, what, like, what could go wrong in a computer at any point in time, right? Disk failure, network failure, like you lose. I don't know. There's like so many options there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I hear you. And like, stuff goes wrong, and it is nice to have a backup. Well, yeah, and uh, I think if you're like if you're designing for availability or like at least some kind of high availability, then running multiple nodes is is a good option, right? Like even if even if it, like you're over provisioned, like just having those backup ones is is a good idea. Yeah, the trick is if you lose the node where your one sessions are, where your session is, then you've lost the session either way. Yeah. Well, yeah, this, so, it's true, it's true. Unless, uh, yeah, I, I mean, yes, yes, you've lost the session, but like, it sounds like you're persisting it anyway. So then your cost is just a hydrate from the cash, right? Yeah. And logic to say, well, if the session has disappeared. Mm, right. Um, like, we expected it to be alive, but now for some reason it's not, then know how to spin it back up. Right. Um so at that point, like, so you're you're doing all of this work to kind of write around write uh, reads from a database, right? But you you still need those reads anyway. Mm -hmm. Like I don't know. Sometimes I like we added caching, um, just very simple kind of memoization caching to some of our functions. We actually have it in a, a, a macro that we can mm -hmm. decorate functions with to say memoize this one, and it will generate a key and do all of that for us. Um. But we only do that on paths that are like insanely hot for the DB or like are right. used so frequently. Like we do it for a lot of our access policies. So an access policy is queried all the time to say like, does this user have uh, access to this thing? And we need to look up some set of some something there, right? So mm -hmm. we, we always decorate those with, with this. But the downside is the cost of that is now 
now like when those things change like we have to have so much extra com like logic in there to to expire those caches to update things and everything like that and yeah we get loads of wins out of doing it but like it definitely you're introducing a lot more like machinery and complexity into your into your environment right and i, I don't know there's there's a the trade-off there is kind of interesting and i guess that's what you're talking about here yeah and that's why i've tried to shy away from clustering unless it's absolutely necessary there's a lot of money to be lost with downtime right um lives are at stake that sort of thing because uh, there is a lot of there are a lot of hoops to jump through and they're not guaranteed to work you know you, like the other thing is is like et is great right because you can obviously store like native uh erlang terms and just chuck those in there and everything just works right and you can query back on them as a key but like, you could also just use memcached as well I say just mm -hmm. as a very loaded term because you have to run a memcache cluster and do that. And, but then you immediately get this multi-node, like the multi-node problem goes away. I do really like being able to store Erlang terms natively, though. Like ha in practice, how them. much are you doing that? Well, quite a bit because you have a user object or you have a oh, you, process ID. Right. Are you persisting that entire user object? Yeah, at times. Mm. Um, or it's part of our state that's locked away somewhere. Right. Um, but you can marshal objects fairly easily as well in Erlang. Sure. I've <laughs> I've got, I've had trouble with that in the past. Like when I'm serializing something to Redis, it's like, oh, how does this timestamp get formatted to a string and then it gets parsed back? And Yeah. yeah I it, mean, yes, there are answers for that, but there's always jiggery-pokery involved. Right. Right. That's true. And if I could just give it the thing and get that back... Like that's easier for easier to use as values, and it's great to use as a key. Mm. No, it's true. I I like the key stuff. I think that makes it really simple, actually. The other thing about uh, having extra nodes is we're not talking about running a distributed application because mm. you can only have one copy of an OTP app running in your cluster. So that doesn't give you backup in case um, some business logic goes down. Um, we're talking about running two different copies of your application that don't talk to each other. Yeah, that's what I'm talking about for availability, literally just for availability. Got it. So then, and like in your in in your example where like tons of traffic comes to one machine as well, right? Like you probably want to be able to load balance that rather than putting all of the weight on a single machine. So then we're just saying that every request like always goes to a single machine. Not every. How do I say this differently? Uh, request from a certain user always go to a single machine. Yeah, and that that's with like sticky sessions on a load balancer if you wanted to mm -hmm. do that. Say. Um and then the load balancer should be smart enough to figure out that you know send it to another host if there's tons and tons of things routed into that one host already. Mhm. Mm yeah. But yeah, I mean like at some point running on a single node or a single machine is not a good idea for availability right like that it it's fine for a while but you know i think you're just exposing yourself to a bunch of risks that uh and and maybe sometimes those things are acceptable but you, you're kind of exposing yourself to a lot of risk of that thing goes away and now you can serve no traffic you know mm -hmm. um or it gets overloaded and now you can serve no traffic and obviously as we talked about last episode the Erlang scheduler does a good job of like still being able to do things even when it's under very heavy load. But that being said, you know, you still might 
max out your memory or like you still like all of those requests might slow down as well and you might be spitting 500s left right and center and actually you could have been dealing with that if you were just running multiple hosts do you know of anyone that is making good use of um, clustering personally um, no but we're, we're we're like we've got it on our horizon here at frame to do it where we have sometimes we have like very bursty traffic where if someone like does a delete of an of like a folder's worth of stuff so it's we we represent a file system in the db and then if someone deletes like that entire folder and let's say it contained like a thousand things inside of it we generate lots and lots of jobs for our for our um event bus or lots of uh, kind of events firing all over the place and mm -hmm. what that does is leads to like a big spike in the cpu so what we're going to do is basically cluster it and then use um, use the cluster to distribute the worker amongst all of those nodes. Because we're running like 15 nodes at any one point in time. Mm -hmm. So the thought there is like, at least we could have a surge queue where you can distribute out and, and basically um, be running those jobs on something that's not doing so much work. And we can just use the um, last use principle to do that and to kind of spread the traffic around a bit more. Does it work well? <laughs> we have yet to try it so <laughs> it's like it's a bit of a I mean it should do like by the principle of like you know, all, at the moment all of those things are being processed on a single machine this stuff doesn't happen that much oh I just realized I'm using like machine and node interchangeably but I most of the time <laughs> mean node um, and yeah most of the time here like that delete will happen on a single place deletes like that don't happen that often and they're the really bursty things that we need to deal with. So you can therefore assume that those other nodes aren't processing so many uh, of our jobs or events through our event bus. So the load could more evenly be distributed. Should work in theory, hmm. but you know, we need to test it out. Yeah. But yeah, I, hmm. I, I think that's a good use case for clustering in my mind. Although we could use some kind of centralized broker of events like a SQS or whatever and have many consumers and get around mm -hmm. it in that way as well, you know? Yes. Um, I think what I've been dancing around and something I've been turning over the last couple of weeks is uh, looking at a lot of the promises of the community and the technology with uh, a dose of experience. I mean, after having done this for a couple of years and seeing, oh, well, here's this hype and here's this promise. I'm like, okay, well, what do we actually do with it? And is that a good idea? I mean, I've seen this with people. We were talking the other day about using umbrella apps when you don't need them. Mm. Like using clustering when you don't need it. And like hot deploys and you probably don't need that. Um, and I don't want to turn anyone off from the language because I'm still a big fan of it um, but I think we haven't done a more honest uh, accounting of like this is when this makes sense this is when you should reach for this tool like sometimes it's best to leave the tools in the drawer mm. so I'm just yeah I've been uh, just trying to ask those questions a little more no um, I, is this worth I it? think that's a good thing like I think being pragmatic about the technology and not being overly hyped about and being like a magpie engineer drawn to all these new things is you know, it, it's good to rationalize it and it's good to think like, you know, is this the right tool sometimes? Because the language is one thing, right? But there's all these other shiny features around it. And like, 
Like, how much of those things do you get out of something like, uh, you know, like a Kubernetes where you have service discovery in the cluster and you can kind of send things around like that as well? Like, yes, the Erlang gives you a lot of wins and the VM is really nice, but that's not to say that you can't build systems like this in other languages, at least to a, to a point, right? And I think that was addressed at one point where someone said, uh, you know, the actor model exists in other languages. I could just use that. And I think the answer is, well, yeah, you can do anything in this Turing complete language, but this makes this thing easy. Like, to your point, sure, I could pull in memcached, set up that cluster, run it, serialize, deserialize, marshal my objects, whatever. But isn't it easier to use this built-in thing? Mm. No, it's true. So, and Yeah, I, I mean, and that is the beauty there. You do have it built in, but at the same time, you still have to jump through quite a lot of hoops in what you're talking about to make that work maybe well for the use case, right? Or maybe mm -hmm. this is just like, maybe this is, uh, you just have to shift your thinking in system design and we're still, we still think in these very like horizontally scalable kind of stateless services where we back it into a, something that's centralized like a memcached or whatever mm -hmm. or a DB. And I, I feel like we, we constantly skirt around that kind of topic of stateful, stateless, you know, <laughs> these kinds of things. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, we have our source of truth and it's an external database. Right, and now you're pushing that source of truth onto into other pr places in this instance, right? So that you have a faster lookup time at the edges. Mm-hmm. And like that, that comes with, that comes with trade-offs, like any good engineering decision, I guess. It's, you're saying in this case, like, Yes, we want this data to be nice and fast, so we have to cache it on these all, all, on these nodes, or in, in your case, on this single node, um, so that we don't have to use a database all the time to get this information. And you know what? Uh, like Elixir's great at that because you have ETS built in, and you can use that as a cache layer and very easily query things. And obviously, the performance is going to be better there. But the downside is. Now you've got a consistency problem, right? You've got data in one place, data in another place, you know, and you've also got a single node problem there where that that cache node is not ever going to be shared across other nodes as well. So if the machine mm -hmm. goes away, you need to spin it back up, you have to hydrate it. So, yeah. Yeah, and then if you've redirected all the traffic to your remaining node to keep serving those, and then they get hydrated there, how do you migrate them back to the first node when that comes back online? Right, or or do you do that? Or do you have some kind of replicated data structure where you share the same data across all of the nodes? Yes, that's a little more interesting because otherwise you end up with a problem where you have two nodes, they're each handling half the load, and then one dies, the live one handles all of it, and then it's just stuck with that yep. uh, until people clear out their sessions totally and I, I think like you see this problem in uh, in Phoenix channels right like it's, it's, it's literally the same problem where <coughs> you're keeping track of a session of someone being connected in real time that, mm -hmm. and you often need to share that session data which is why they went with presence and used that but in in this case maybe you could generalize presence if you connect all those nodes together and then use like the underlying presence tech the CRDT kind of stuff to then replicate that ETS table across all those nodes if they were clustered. Could be kind of interesting. That would be a dope pull request. <laughs> yeah, get to work, man. It's a, it's a Sunday. <laughs> Come on, do it. <laughs>
uh, I'm past the point where that's what I want to do on my Sunday afternoons. Yeah, I understand. I think I'll be good at the beach later. But I mean, you do bring up a really good point where, like, just hopping back a couple of steps to think about, you know, those adoption stories. Like, not getting overly hyped by tech and actually thinking about, like, where does this provide business value? You know, like. I I I think like now I I like when I first got into Elixir I was like you know what all these devs are going to love it everyone's going to come they're going to migrate from Rails and it's going to be so easy to find developers it's going to be really easy to train people all of these things and like I think some of that has played out and some of it hasn't been so easy as well at times like st- finding great Elixir developers is still really difficult training people mm-hmm. is one option there right and obviously that we have to do that to grow this community but yeah i'm just going to jump in there i know of two great elixir developers oh yeah and they're both on this podcast <laughs> yeah i guess i guess we've been doing it for a while at this point but but you're right and i think um this is what the the hype cycle is trying to shed light on is um yeah everyone gets into it and it's it's new it's shiny and it's super exciting and in a lot of ways it is like Phoenix addressed a lot of problems that Rails had. I think Elixir doesn't really address problems that Ruby has because Elixir isn't a reaction to Ruby. I mean, I guess Jose would say he wanted something, a concurrent language for the web. Mm-hmm. So, in that way, I suppose it is. But Erlang wasn't, it was written before Ruby. So, I think, um, where am I going with this? Help me out. <laughs> uh, oh, so... Uh, it's it's easy to say this is the next big thing. It's going to be totally different. And I do think that the language and the ecosystem and the real time and the scalability will enable applications that um, we cannot think of right now sitting on this couch. Because uh, it takes a shift in mindset. It takes some young kid uh, with some crazy idea to write it and um, not be bound by the conventions of the past. And I mean, WhatsApp is a, a great example. I think more and more communications apps will all be written in this technology because that's a great fit. But I think we also do ourselves a disservice when we say in order to replace something like Rails, it has to do everything awesomely. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that's true. I would say even if you had a very basic uh, low traffic CRUD app, I would 100% still write that in Phoenix because I think it's a more pleasant language and ecosystem and environment to work in. Definitely. Um, yeah, I'm, but but then at the same time, it's like it's interesting to look at other communities outside of Rails, like look to the Go's, look to the Rust's, right, and see what's going on there as well, and see like what's, you know, is there another viable alternative? Yeah, and then you get into well, what what problem am I trying to solve? Right. I mean, I don't think Go is a good web programming language. I don't think you can express business logic at a high enough level mm. in Go. I mean, and you're not going to write systems level stuff in Elixir like you would with Rust. Right. No, I mean, that's fair. That's fair. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know where I was going so, with this. I, wh- I mean, if we're talking about like web development languages, I would 100% use this. Right. Um, we don't have a lot of experience with nerves. Uh, there's been talk about doing more nerves on this podcast which we're looking into so stay tuned for that but i think that could be a a good fit Mm. um someone more learned about it might help us out there definitely i I think like what the the point i was trying to get to here is like it's still a young community right like we, we haven't been doing this that long and like we um i mean it goes to show because desmond and i are talking on a podcast about it and we're like 
yeah, I, I guess we we are fairly experienced, but we're by no means yeah. like two and a half, three years. Yeah, yeah, which is not that long in the grand scheme of it's things. Not that so, long. Yeah, and you know, as a community, we need more examples of complex applications that have been built in Elixir to help springboard it, right? To show you the power and show you the patterns and show you the idioms that you need to use to therefore build things in the quote-unquote right way. And mm -hmm. I, I guess, you know, I like to think we do a little bit of that on here as well. But I also wanted to say that um, I was excited about reading the new Adopting Elixir book as well that has been written. Um, mm -hmm. And if you haven't seen that yet, we'll put a link in the show notes to that. Um, that there's some really fantastic people on there who've written that book. Uh, I know that Bruce Tate's on there. I know that Ben Marks is on there. I know it has a bit from Jose as well. It's um, yeah. So you know, things like that in the community are really great to help us kind of like sh sh like uh, shed some light on some of these more complex um, problems and how to solve how to solve for them and how how you the listener can go out there and actually take these and then apply those patterns back. And I think that we are all, um, I'll say mature enough to recognize that there's nuance in these arguments and we don't have to come out there and say, this is perfect, you should use it all the time for it to be a very compelling choice. And also by saying, well, it has this weakness and we're still trying to figure that out. Uh, I don't think that's necessarily a strong argument against it. Mm. Um, and I think we can avoid that whole, like, it's either great and use it for everything or it's worthless, use it for nothing, and take a clear-headed look at it. And I think it does uh, a greater service to the language and the community mm -hmm. by, um, by raising these questions and by being honest with other people in the community about um, uncertainties and trials and errors and um, things you would do differently. Definitely. I do like I. I just going back to your caching. Uh, sure. Your caching use case. Pick on me a little more. <laughs> I I do like to do that. Um, <laughs> I I wonder if it's I wonder if it's uh, premature optimization in some ways, right? Uh no, because a version of this has been out there. Oh, uh, okay. So you're not just building the scratch. Buckled. Okay. Okay. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. I, I do think, like, I remember when I started doing this and I was, like, so hyped on processes that, like, tried to make everything fit into a process when introduced complexity where there probably didn't need to be any. And actually, you know, there was orders of magnitude of scale in the database that we could have just used. You know, a database is really good at finding information, right? Mm -hmm. That's kind of what it's been optimized for. And, like, we uh, you can put a lot through it without you know, without having problems there. And we get a lot of benefits from just using Elixir as a language being um, somewhat faster than Ruby in certain circumstances. And the fact that Phoenix's JSON um, serialization and just rendering out strings um, is is pretty damn good, right? Like, so we still get mm -hmm. a lot of speed benefits there. So, you know, sometimes a DB isn't your bottleneck, although, you know, in some cases it might be. I don't know. I don't know. I think it's just like using the tech wisely and making sure you're making the right decisions there, right? I will say that um, using a process to model um, a user session or a player session is very, very easy. Mm. Very. Um, what's the word I want? Uh, it it maps very well. There's no um, like cognitive impedance mismatch because you have this idea of like. This is happening right now. There's a defined beginning and end to the session. It's not like, oh, well, the user walks away from their computer and 
we don't know what it ends. We have much more clearly uh, defined boundaries. And um, yeah, that makes it easy to conceptually like talk to this process and tell it to do things. And um, in the past, you might do this with a model and then have it be backed by database operations. And there's there's just always a gap there. Like you can kind of feel the abstraction leaking through at times when you wonder, well, did the state update um, in memory or was it persisted? And is this thing still alive as opposed to, I'm just kind of recording events and changes. Like I know that this is alive. I know what it's doing and what it has been doing. So what I'm trying to push for is um, just don't sync to the databases often mm. to um, ease up on writes and you, know, you trade off write traffic with uh, uh, more latency or just less less fresh data mm -hmm. I guess but I think it's okay in some circumstances to say we don't need every update like we can take the one from a second ago or three seconds ago whatever it is mm. and that's sufficient no I, I think you're right I think modeling a session or in a process is kind of a perfect use case, right? Like you can represent each session as its own defined process and then store a bunch of operations on it. It seems really elegant. Um, mm -hmm. And then, yeah, you're making a trade-off there about like, you know what, some data loss is acceptable. And that, and that might be okay for your use case there as well, right? Yeah, because then the question is, well, if we lose data, like what does it mean to restart, restart this action? Right. I mean... Beyond, oh, well, how do we load this data back into memory? It's like, what does it mean for the user? I mean, are we talking about recovering their shopping cart? Are we talking about recovering uh, their their game state? I mean, if I've if I've been playing uh, Pac-Man and uh, it dies on me, like, I can't just kind of drop in to where I was in the middle of the level. I mean, you can do that with emulators, and I have done that before. But usually, you know, it just means like, oh, shit, we, we blew it. You got to start over. Mm -hmm. um, so there's kind of a, a level like checkpoint thing. Yeah, I mean there, there there probably are some cases, and like this is where you you know you have to be pragmatic, where you might need to record every single action, and mm -hmm. you know there might be legal requirements around that, and then you have to think about things in through a different lens, right? But yeah, and you know I think you do want to record every action for say analytics, right? But when it comes to keeping the state of a live session. Yeah, I mean, if you lose it, then the user has lost their thing one way or another. Mm -hmm. Like, maybe it doesn't even make sense to rehydrate it. Like, it's just gone. Right. You can't recreate that moment in time. Mm -hmm. uh, so, you know, we'll have some interesting discussions this week, I think. Yeah, 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 definitely. I, I mean, I would say, like, the X-Cached library is very, very good if you need to... Um, if if you wanted to use a library to do some of this stuff, it seems like it's generalized a lot of these kind of time to live problems and like looking mm -hmm. at lots of this different stuff. Um, and well, I did uh, beef up that library that you were working on. Oh yeah, which one? Yeah, Segment IO has no official uh, Elixir support. That's right. So we had to pull uh, the one that you and Stu wrote a couple years ago. Oh yeah, that's that's old at this point. Yeah. Yeah. I had to bring that one sort of up to modern times. Mm. But um, it's much cooler now. Batches updates, you can use different write keys. Nice. Yeah, it's much more flexible. Do you want to talk about how you did the batching? Sure. So in the original implementation, every time you would make a, a segment call or call a segment event, 
uh, it would me immediately turn around and post off to segment. It would fork a new task to do this, so it would happen quickly. But if you have a lot of, uh, if, if you have a high throughput system, then you could be looking at spawning up hundreds of tasks uh, every second, and then you would hit the limit of segments API potentially. So segment has a batch API where you can send a bunch of events all at once. And so what we did is all of our, uh, when we call an event in the application, it stores that in the state of a gen server and in just a list. And it prepends it to the list because adding to the list, to the end of a list, um, is O of N. So uh, this, and it didn't matter what order they were in really, because they all have timestamps. So we put it at the top of the list, happens quickly, and then every three seconds, uh, we flush flush it out, and then we look at each event to say, what type is it? Because we have to make a batch call to uh, to each each uh, match, key. match key? Yeah. Each write key, sorry. Mm -hmm. We have to make a batch call under each write key. So then uh, when we flush it, we fork that off in a new process so that happens quickly. And then we only make um, up to five calls a second, depending on how many uh, write keys we have. And um, every three seconds is a totally reasonable interval. Nice. Yeah, we, uh, we literally did something very similar as well. So we forked a library that I help, helped write a long time ago <laughs> and mm -hmm. then did a similar kind of gen server-based implementation. I think we used a queue, though, just because, yeah, queues. It's kind of right, right? Yeah. Um, Actually, well, maybe we didn't use a queue. I forget now. We haven't done a lot of load testing to see how much the gen server mailbox backs up yeah it's probably fine honestly if you're flushing that frequently yeah it could be i mean it depends like if we just if the thing can only handle so much mm. um every every tick then it could back up but we're not doing like heavy computations we already have the structure we're just prepending it to the list which happens in constant time so it should happen fast right i think so yeah time will tell <laughs> no, it's cool. I mean, it's a really easy use case for a gen server as well, right? Like storing some state and then you just have a process.send after and just batching mm -hmm. up those sends. Like super simple. Yeah, and we ended up um, going against the spinning up a gen server for each write key. Yeah. Um, why? why? There were a lot more moving pieces and um, and I think then you have to move the right key abstraction up a level. And then you don't just um, call it. Then you can't just call, uh, here's a segment event for a right key. Then the library has to look at that and keep its own internal mapping of gen servers it knows about and um, direct it to the right one. Oh uh, yeah, that's it was, true. It was easier to take a, a list and then partition it or group it. Right, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it makes sense. And the one. Yeah, that's nice. I, th I think that's like, again, that's like a great process use case, right? It's so yeah. simple. And like, I, I think like traditionally you pull in a library that does that, but like there's no, it, it's so little code to do yourself and it's so simple just to do that, that it shouldn't be a big deal to write something like that, you know? Yeah, and you'd spend as much time figuring out how the library worked if you pulled in an outside one. Right. I mean, there is, there, I mean, there is a good thought process there that you should use a library because in that library they've tested the implementation against the segment API and hopefully they're keeping it up to date and everything like that, right? There's still some complexity and... You don't know if they're doing that. 
Yeah, that's true. But you, you would mean, hope so with some. You would hope of, so. Yeah, use the library. I don't <laughs> think that's point, true for the analytics elixir one that we wrote. Uh, well, there you go. In case in point, I mean, it's always up to you to make sure it works. Yeah. Um, as my teacher says, it's not your responsibility, but it is your problem. Hmm. Is that right? Yeah. Right. So as a you know, as a someone pulling in the library. Yeah, yeah, like it's your problem if it doesn't work, so you have to check it either way. Definitely, definitely. Except for the fact that if you do it yourself, you've kind of widened your maintenance burden, right? But then maybe you did anyway. Well, I think the assumption is that these sorts of libraries are for straightforward things, mm -hmm. as opposed to mapping to some sort of complicated uh, external API or, I don't know, calculation. Like, right. Obviously, you don't want to do uh, encryption on your own. Uh, no, definitely not. Leave that to the experts. Yeah. But uh, yeah, sending analytics to segment, I feel pretty comfortable handling that. Yeah, yeah, you're right. And the API is so simple as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's cool. Well, are you going to open source that? Uh, it is open source. Yeah, I'll put a link in the show notes. It's uh, github.com slash versus systems slash analytics elixir. Oh, did you do a fork then? Yeah, we forked your thing. We may change the name because Analytics Elixir is uh, not quite what it does. Yeah, but that's what that. So uh, I digress, but like that's what all the other segment libraries are called: Analytics dash Ruby. Well, it should, should at least be called Segment Analytics Elixir, right? No, they're all just called Analytics. It's well, weird. when they decide to officially support this one, official, they can they can have input on it. I'm surprised they don't have an official library for Elixir. Yeah, I know, I know. What are uh, they doing over there? Maybe they just saw the one that we had and they were like, that'll do. <laughs> Oops. They must not have looked very closely at it. Yeah, sorry if anyone's <laughs> using that in production as well. But uh, definitely batching is a good move. Yeah, we, we yeah. saw a lot of, um, to your point before, like if every single like track or whatever you're doing through this analytics library if you do lots and lots of those, you end up having lots of HTTP connections open as well. Um, and you end up like having queues in your HTTP pool unless you have like a massive amount of processes going there. Mm -hmm. um, and we ended up seeing some timeouts and it was very inefficient, obviously, because batching is a way better way to approach that than doing single HTTP requests all over the place. But, you know, you, uh, you got to start somewhere. It's true. It's true, and it's important to start somewhere. Yeah. yeah. Um, and another uh, situation that people have run into is uh, if you fork off all of your HTTP requests in different processes, you can easily overwhelm someone's API. And there was a talk at the NYC Elixir meetup a year or so ago about this, where someone was just like, yeah, and then we tossed in concurrency to just like do it all at once. And you quickly hit a rate limit on your... Um, on your external API. Definitely. Yeah, so, so in, in this use case, you want to say you want to limit to match uh, segment incoming um, limit on their API as well, right? Yes, exactly. Concurrency, we can we can do it, but it's not free. Mm. You know, there's someone on the other end of that. No, it's great. Yeah, it's very cool. So I wanted to give a bit of a, uh, a shout out to MPEX NYC. Um, so... If you don't know, and I'm sure you've heard us talk about it before, but MPEX is a conference hosted uh, in LA and in New York. Um, the New York conference is coming up in May. Uh, it's on May 20th, and it's going to be hosted at a jazz club in Soho here in New York. Um, it's a really great space. We have a pianist. It's really good vibes. It will be a fun day. 
Um, so we have all of our speakers are announced right now. You can go to mpex.co forward slash myc .html and you can see all of those speakers. Um, we have some really, really fantastic talks coming up. So um, it, it's going to be a really brilliant day if you're into Elixir. If you haven't done any, you're still going to get a bunch out of it as well. Um, so yeah, I just encourage you to come and check it out. Tickets are on sale now. Um, and we also have a training on the 19th as well. So that's going to be uh, a nerves training, which as Desmond mentioned, we don't talk about much here, but we will be doing soon. Um, and we have a beginner's training and an advanced training. So three different options for you. You can pick and choose for what you want to uh, learn. And that's on sale as well right now. So separate training and separate conference tickets. Just go onto the MPEX website and you can go and check that out. Awesome. So two quick points about that. You don't need the HTML at the end. Oh, did you fix it? I thought, well, it turns out it was always working this way. I just didn't know that. So you can go to mpex.co slash NYC to uh, get more information, see the speakers, buy your tickets. Um, so be sure to check that out. And also, the conference is on May 19th, which is a Saturday. And the training is the day before on Friday the 18th. Did I just get that completely wrong? I believe you did, Chris. Oh, that's really embarrassing. I should know the day. <laughs> I think I've been telling everyone it's May 20th. Well, I hope they show up on the 19th. <laughs> yeah, me too. <laughs> yeah, sorry. Yeah, Desmond's right. The Yeah, it's May 18th for the training, May 19th for the conference. So check that out. Should be fun. Yeah, we've got um, two keynotes, and then I think it's like it's nine speakers or ten speakers. So, yeah, going to be a yeah, good day. Yeah, that'd be great. Chris and I will both be there. Yeah, you coming? Yeah, I'm coming. Oh, that's I wouldn't great. Miss it. Awesome. I started started this conference. <laughs> <laughs> I want to check out that neon sign. Oh, so yeah. sweet. It's your favorite thing. Yeah, and I just love being in subculture. It's just such a cool venue. Definitely. Yeah, so we'll both be there, and hopefully we can do like a little little Alexa talk thing and uh, get some stickers or something. Well, yeah, I mean, I'm going to have time to do that. At the MPEX LA, I was... MCing and you were speaking, so we didn't really have any bandwidth to do something. Yeah, that's right. So you'll be busy with organizing, but I should have some time to. Cool. Yeah, I, I uh, help with the food. So if you have any complaints about the food, you can usually send those my way. So. Yeah. Cool. Well, seen any good Star Trek recently? You know what? I haven't. Oh, um, man. I'm. Yeah. I don't know. I actually just came. Like I just saw Ready Player One sometime. And it was interesting, lots of nerd references, so... Yeah. yeah. You didn't sound too enthusiastic about it. Ah, uh, it was okay. It was it was better than I expected, but I didn't expect that much, so it, it had some, like, feel-good feels, but, yeah. Have you read the book? No, I kind of refused to read the book. Oh. Yeah. The book's fun. I think the book's fun. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's a good, it's a good beach read. Uh, the movie was interesting because it's like the whole premise is 80s references. So it's clearly aimed at people our age who are in their 30s yeah. and possibly 40s um, who remember the stuff. But the story itself is like written for 19 year olds, which is fine. Plenty of movies for that demographic. But like, I don't think they're going to get the references and people my age want a more compelling story than like generic um, generic love story hero's journey with yeah, yeah. one-sided 
extra characters. Yeah, that's that's like that was my feelings exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. So I wasn't sure who it was for, but um, you know, I had to go see it because I want them to keep making these nerdy movies. Yeah, definitely. That is a thing. We'll I get a good one someday. Yeah. Cool. cool. Yeah, well, uh, hopefully see everyone at Ampex and hope to see some uh, ticket purchases, maybe. I don't know. Yeah, get your tickets now while they're uh, still happening. And um, be sure to check us next time for another sweet episode of Elixir Talk. Yeah. Until then, send us in your questions. Uh, we have a website, elixirtalk.com, and you can ask us a question through our Twitter or on GitHub, which is github.com slash elixirtalk slash elixirtalk. Cool. Thanks for listening, and uh, we'll see you next time. So keep, keep elixiring. elixiring. <laughs>